We've been looking at the book of Acts for several weeks now and discovering how the New Testament church functioned, how they operated, how they related to each other. And I hope you are reading it along with, with me as we sort of take our journey through there and stop along the way at various passages to see what the Lord is saying to us. Primarily, we are using it as a model and a guide to say, this is the church. This is how the church is supposed to function, lest we drift further and further away from that model. Everything about our culture would cause us to want to drift, but we need not do that. We're going to be centered on what the Bible says the church is supposed to be. Does, how many think that's a good idea? Okay, both of you. All right, that's great. So that's what we have been doing for a period of time, and we will continue to do that. However, today I'm going to make a departure and I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to the book of Acts. And um, I hope that doesn't throw anybody off. And if it does, I apologize for that. I am normally much more regimented with my plan, get a plan, stick with the plan, see it all the way to the goal line and all that sort of thing. That's, that's more uh, my norm. But a uh, couple things happen. First of all, I realized this week that there is no deadline for us to finish the book of Acts will actually never be probably finished with it totally, and um, since there's no deadline, I promise we'll get through it sometime. And so if this little detour offends you today, then here's how we'll handle this. Uh, you go ahead and pray through, and then I'll forgive you, okay? <laughs> that's, that's, that's how we'll do that, <laughs> if that works out well for you, and it, I think it's the best way. Here's what I realized, <clears throat> and that is that... Um, I can't get up here and talk about what the book of Acts tells us about being filled with the Holy Spirit, which means being controlled by the Holy Spirit and admonishing all of us, me, you, all of us, what the book says about do what the Holy Spirit says. Go where he says go. Uh, don't go where he says don't go. Speak when he says speak. Be silent when he says to be silent in a conversation. All those things that we've been reminded that are important for us as Spirit-filled believers to do. I can't do that and yet have the experience that I had this week of feeling that nudge inside that I need to go a certain direction and begin to recognize the Lord was possibly had something for us on this that is unique for today. I can't, it would be wrong of me to do that and not follow the same thing. So that's what I'm attempting to do today with you church is follow what I believe the Spirit of the Lord would say to us. And I believe that and I'm hoping and praying that there's something here for us from the Word of God today and I, and I believe it is. How many believe we should follow what the Holy Spirit says? All right. In the last few days, we've been experiencing the changing of seasons, and it's been quite profound. Sometimes the changing of season kind of sneaks up on us, and we, we sort of get into it without realizing that, we're, that we are there. It seems like the temperature has dropped more dramatically, and it's, it's been a little more of a grand entrance into this, uh, this new season. I know many folks have their favorite season of the year. How many of you have a favorite season? Let me see your hand. For how many of you, this is your favorite season? Okay. I know that's true for lots of people. They like it. It's not my favorite. I do have one, um, and uh, I, for reasons I've discussed before and aren't important today. But I know many people have a favorite season. But I, um, I was in Nashville a couple of days this week involved in in uh, some music production, and the temperature dropped all the way into the upper 20s at night. That felt more like we skipped fall and went right on into winter for, to me. 
So all that to say that that was in the nighttime. It was that way, 30s and upper 20s. It was, it was really cold, and it really got my attention because when I left Dallas-Fort Worth on Wednesday afternoon, it was 82 degrees, hallelujah, which is why I live in Texas. <clears throat> and, um, but I had seen that it was going to be uh, much colder, according to the, you know, the, the weather report in Nashville, so I felt kind of really stupid at, at, in Dallas-Fort Worth carrying a huge big coat with me as everybody else was in their shorts and, you know, and tank tops and all of that. But nonetheless, I was really glad I had it when it was 28 degrees uh, in, in Nashville. All that to say, it made me profoundly aware this week of the changing of seasons and how the seasons come and the seasons go. It, really, it was really uh, graphically uh, shown to me. I was very, very aware of it. And I couldn't help in my thoughts about that to think about how we live our lives in seasons. We live our lives in seasons. Yes, we understand time in the sense of uh, hours, days, weeks, months, and, the, and years, and that which we can quantify. We know, we know how long those are. But there is that which transcends those quantifi quantifiable measures of time, and it's this thing we call seasons. We live our lives in seasons. There's a a term that we have that we use quite often in the pastoral team meetings over the last few months as we discuss the various demographic groups of our fellowship and it's not new to us I know many other churches use this term as well it's a compound word uh, and it's the word life stage that's because it's very difficult anymore to simply categorize people well, Here's the people that are in their 20s and 30s, and here's the people in their 40s and 50s, and the people in, you know, 60 plus. Because how many know that 60 is the new 40? I said. <laughs> I need a little more support than that. <laughs> so it's a little hard <clears throat> to kind of pigeonhole people. Because how many of you are, the number on, that reflects your age, which we won't discuss, is not the way you feel up here? There you go. Now you're awake. It may be the way you feel here, <laughs> but it's not the way you see yourself up here. Don't you wonder, how did I get here this fast? How did this happen? Well, there's this thing called life stage. And we understand that with life stage, that you know, people that are young married couples um, that have small children, they're, you know, they're in a certain stage of life. They're dealing with certain kinds of issues. They're in a certain life stage. And you know, they have a newborn, and they're having to stay up all night you know, and bless their hearts and, um, and do all, that, all the stuff that comes with small children. That's a certain life stage. And then there's those that are over 60, they're up all night, for, but for entirely different reasons. <laughs> now, 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 now. <laughs> Behave yourself here today. Life stage. We are, there's those natural stages of life and seasons because we live our lives in seasons. Even today, there's not a person in this room that is not experiencing some certain kind of season of life. You may be in a season of change. You may be in a season of waiting. You may be in a season of sorrow 
or grief. We have many people that are in that season right now. You may be just in a season of reflection. Hopefully, many of you are experiencing a season of refreshing. But we live our lives in seasons. And I began to have all, began to have all kinds of thoughts about seasons. Now, it happens occasionally that somebody comes to me uh, that they, uh, they want to be married and they want some counseling before marriage. I highly recommend that you don't come to me, um, really. There are far more people, that, there are many people around Bethesda that are far better qualified than I am to talk to you about that because if you come to talk to me, let me tell you right now the speech that you're going to get, okay? I'll tell you the speech, but if you come and... and sit in my office, you're going to get the same speech again. I just tell you that right now. And it goes something like this. In walks a lovely young lady, and she's beaming and glowing because she's in love. And the little purple and pink hearts are over her head, and, and the butterflies are floating between them, and she's batting her eyes. And she just says, oh, pastor, I have met the man of my dreams. And he's wonderful. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy for her. I mean, if, if, you, if God's given you that, enjoy it, because that part's not going to last forever. Those little butterflies, they're going to fly away one of these days. <clears throat> That's what you clap for? But it goes like this. And I said, so how did you meet this fine young man? <clears throat> well, it was about three weeks ago. <laughs> and red flags start flying over my head. <clears throat> and I, she talks, and but oh, pastor, this is the one. This is absolutely it. So my speech goes something like this. I'll give you the short version of it. Summer, winter, spring, and fall. Go through those, at least those four seasons with this person that you have eyes for. Not only because just in the natural seasons, the time that could be afforded by you going that, taking that long with them affords you the opportunity to see them in all the various lights that there are for them to be seen. Can I get an amen? Now, I know that maybe your story's different and you're the exception I, there are people who have heard my speech and uh, were displeased with the fact that I said that because they didn't want me to, you know, wreck the party and what they were going to do. And at least in one case, I can tell you, they got mad enough and left the church and went ahead and did their thing, and they are already, uh, six months later, shipwrecked. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But those of us who have lived a few years understand the importance of season understand how important it is. You know, anybody, any of these joker dudes can look good for three weeks. Come on. <laughs> any of them can. But what happens when they get angry? What happens when winter comes? What happens when circumstances and they get put under stress and, they, and you've got to learn how they respond? Now, you may go through those seasons and you may find out, yeah, that's what they're made of, and here's the good and the bad and the ugly, but I still love them, and I still want them, and I'm going to commit to that, knowing I'll probably never change them, even though I want to. 
Might not ever change him, but I'll take him just like he is. I'll take her just like she is. And I love her just like she is. I love him just like, like, like he is. If that's what God does for you, hallelujah. Summer, winter, spring, and fall. It's a very, very important thing because we live our lives in seasons. I can talk a little bit. I was mindful of this as this sort of the Lord began to drop all this, these ideas in my heart. You know, I've spent 30 years as in the music industry, Christian music industry, as an arranger, producer, orchestrator. I've done that for a long time. And I was talking with the students from Bethesda School of Ministry a few nights ago, and, and uh, they were asking me questions about longevity and, and you know, and, and uh, how you stay fresh. You know, I said, well, first of all, who's to say I do? But, you know, how do you stay fresh with all of that? And, <clears throat> and, and I began to be reminded of something that I know, and that is this, that my writing, what I call my orchestrating, it's been in seasons. Now, I didn't know that going into it. But somewhere along the path, after having done it for decades, I began to be aware there have been seasons to my creative work. And so much so that I could go back today, if you were to find some, and please don't, but if you could find some old recording of mine that I did a few years ago, and I heard it, I listened to it, I can identify, maybe not specifically the, the, the time, but I can identify the season that I was in. Because I've learned that sounds in a particular season, and who knows how long that is, I can't quantify it, but in those seasons of time, sounds would come into my head. Things that would be intriguing me that I wanted to employ in my creative work. They would come and then they, would, they might dissipate and then here would come new sounds. And so if you were asking for me to do work for you, anybody that was that client that came to ask for it, when you got my services, you got the season that I was in at that particular time. You didn't ask for that, but that's what you got. And that's what it was. And I reached the point of becoming comfortable with that and not concerned about any sameness that was within the season because that was the season I was in at that time. And not only that, I, then my prayer was, and this is what I said to the students the other night, my prayer was to try to identify this is the season I'm in and I'm just asking the Lord to move me from season to season. In the same way that he moves us from grace to grace and from glory to glory, he moves us from season to season. Now that may not mean a whole lot to everybody, but you sit on that a while and it might later because we live our lives in seasons now you know where I'm going to go it's not the book of Acts I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes 3 we've been there before it's been about 18 months ago and I'm sure you all remember every word that I said on that day you can quote it Ecclesiastes 3 <clears throat> you know this everything that happens in this world happens at the time God chooses he sets the time for birth and the time for death, the time for planting and the time for pulling up, the time for killing and the time for healing, the time for tearing down and the time for building. He sets the time for sorrow and the time for joy, the time for mourning and the time for dancing. I like this verse. The time for making love, the time for not making love, the time for kissing and the time for not kissing. Did you know that was in the Bible? There it is right there. He sets the time for finding and the time for losing. Hmm. The time for saving and the time for throwing away. The time for tearing and the time for mending. The time for silence and the time for talk. 
He sets the time for love and the time for hate, the time for war and the time for peace. What do we gain from all our work? I know the heavy burdens that God has laid on us. and He has set the right time for everything. He has given us a desire to know the future, but never gives us the satisfaction of fully understanding what he does. So I realize that all we can do is be happy and do the best we can while we are still alive. You know, this is written by, it's presumed to be Solomon in his old age. All of us should eat and drink and enjoy what we have worked for. It is God's gift. I know that everything God does will last forever. You can't add anything to it or take anything away from it. And one thing God does, oh, and one thing God does, read it with me, is to make us stand in awe of him. Well, they don't have the scripture up, I'm sorry. That's why you were, went silent on me. Whatever happens or can happen has already happened before. God makes the same thing happen again and again. If I were to give this message a title, and I'm not very good at that, but if I were to give this message a title, it would be The Tapestry of Seasons. You've all heard this passage before. There's a time for this and a time for that. And you probably have interpreted it in one of two ways because it's what, you, it's what we hear, the interpretations we hear the most often. There are two very common interpretations, and I'm going to propose to you this morning that both of them tend to miss the truth. On the one hand, there's the interpretation that puts all of the emphasis on the fact that it is within your human capacity or my human capacity to decide the appropriate time to do something. So this posture says that there is a time and a place for everything, and you should decide what is the appropriate time to dance and what is the appropriate time not to dance. It's saying that there is a time and a place for everything, and that is a humanist philosophy, and if that were really true, it would have no place in the Word of God. It wouldn't be here. And the trouble with, honestly, with most English translations is that they give the wrong impression which is why I deliberately chose the Good News Version this morning. I don't often go there, but I did this, this for this. Because most versions say, a time. There is a time to dance. There is a time to cry. But research into the passage makes it plain that it should be the time. The message that should come through to us is that it is not our choice to choose our times and seasons. It is already chosen. However, that could easily cause us to swing to the opposite extreme. And there are also those who have interpreted this passage in a spirit of fatalism, meaning that there's, it's already been decided and there's nothing that you can do about it. Your schedule is already set. What you will do tomorrow morning is already in place and, and nothing at all can change it, no matter what you say or no matter what you do. It is fixed. Your calendar is completely fixed. But I think a careful study of this passage teaches us that it is neither of these extremes. It's not yours or mine to choose if one season is for joy and sorrow or mourning or dancing, or, nor do we have to accept in a fatalistic way that God has it all in place and there's nothing that you can do about it. As is often the case with many things that are considered with two extremes, it's usually best to find the truth right in the middle. Can you say amen to that? And what I believe the Ecclesiastes writer is trying to teach us today is how to respond to the seasons and the tides of time. How to respond to them. 
how to weave out of them a tapestry that has beauty in it and purpose and meaning and value. And he's asking the question, is life worth living? What is the point of it all? It's an important question because if if we don't ask it, we will tend to float through life ignoring the seasons and ending up wasting so much of our life. The secret for all of us is to learn how to properly respond to the ebb and flow of the seasons of our lives and to weave them into the tapestry that God has designed for us. This passage makes it very clear that instead of saying there is a time for this or a time for that, it makes it very clear it's God sets the time. It's God who has set your days in order. It is God who's determined what your season is going to be. It is God who knows that the season that you are about to move into is a time of joy or a time of mourning. God knows that. It is God who has set that. And whatever you may put on your schedule, whatever you put there, God sets the calendar and the seasons of your life. And there is not one of us who can write in our planner even one month ahead what is going to happen because we simply don't know, but God does. You and I cannot set the times and the seasons, and yet what we do with the seasons that God has set for us determines whether or not there is any point to our lives. Hear me carefully this morning, church. So it is a balance. God sets the seasons, but what we do with the seasons is our responsibility, and it's the secret of life to be able to properly respond to the seasons which are set for us. In other words... We don't spend all of our lives wanting to dance and laugh and be happy and to build, but if we can learn to seize those seasons of mourning and sorrow and loss, and if we can respond to them rightly, then we can weave all of it into a life that is not pointless, but rather one that is rich and full of meaning and has purpose. And I want to say this today, and I'm speaking now specifically to young parents, parents of of young children. But I'm going to say, this is not a couplet that is in Ecclesiastes as these couplets are. Time to do this, time to do that. They come in couplets. But it's one that I think is very critical for us to understand today. There is the time to succeed and the time to fail. How many of you would say your testimony is like mine, that you have learned far more from your failures than you ever learned from your successes? How many in the room would say like me, I have failed so much more than I have succeeded? It's true. Now here's the problem, particularly in our American culture, we are so success driven. And honestly, one of the things I love about the Texas mentality, one of the reasons I love being in Texas is because there is a can-do spirit that's woven in the fabric of of our culture in this part of the country. And I love that about us. And we want to succeed. None of us ever set out to fail. I mean, how stupid. We wouldn't do that. We don't set out to be disastrous in the effort. We wouldn't do that. We set out to succeed. However, there is a time to succeed and there is a time to fail. And why do I address this particularly to young parents? Is this. If there is ever anything that this older parent could say that is so important, when those moments come, when your child fails, That is a critical moment for you to seize the opportunity to help nurture them and care for them and teach them how to fail successfully. Because the truth of the matter is this. Failure is something that they are going to face more than once in their life. How many know I'm telling you the truth? You will not always be the one chosen. You will not always be the prom queen. 
You will not always be the quarterback on the football team. You might get put on the bench. Others might be chosen above you. You might not make the soccer team. You might not get the best grade in the class. Do you try for that? Sure. Of course we do. But it might not happen to you every time. And I've seen so many people who have so uh, parented their children that they want to be this big cushion that protects them completely from any of the things that come with failure, the disappointment, the hurt. Of course, it's terrifying and, and very upsetting and disconcerting to watch your child hurting. But dear young parent, understand that when you have that moment, teach them how to deal with that. That is a teaching opportunity for you because when you do that, you are doing a good job of parenting because you are helping that child build their muscles of knowing how to deal with the stuff of life that's going to happen because probably this is not the last time that they will experience failure. Let me draw the analogy this way. I have a favorite hamburger shop in my part of the town I live that I go to way too often. It's just a one shop, not a chains owned by a guy named Johnny. Johnny and I have become friends. Hey, pastor. When I walk in the door, he already knows my order, which is embarrassing. You know, the whole place knows. <laughs> he wants a number two, you know. <clears throat> Johnny and his wife have been through it. In fact, their name is on our prayer card for our prayer service on Sunday nights at six o'clock because she's facing cancer. They have uh, three adult children. One of them, two twin boys. I mean, I think it's four. They'd had twin boys. One of the young boys in his early 20s passed away last December. They'd been through it. So I walked in this past week and uh, greeted him, had a nice conversation. I was there at an hour that the place wasn't full, and he sat down and talked with me as he, as he usually does when I go in. So how's it going at the church? Well, it's, it's going good. The Lord's helping us, you know. Just like any other place, we have our ups and downs. And I said, you know, we've had a... We've had a, a lot of funerals recently. We've had a lot of people pass away. That's always, you know, heartbreaking and all that. And he looked at me. He's, he's a, little, you know, a little rough around some of the edges. And he says, oh, I bet you hate that part of your job, don't you? I said, you know, really no. I said, is it challenging? Yes. But when you're dealing with people whose hearts are open and vulnerable at that kind of a moment, and you're a pastor, and the drive and push of your life is to minister to people and be able to bring them the grace and the love of Jesus, then all of a sudden you see this as an opportunity to seize. The truth is, when I'm working with a family who's just lost a loved one, their hearts are open and tender and raw and right out there on the table. And there is an inroad to minister to them and talk with them in a way that I can't at other times. How many know not everybody every day has their heart open? But this is an opportunity so someone who does what I do and who has the push that I have and wants to help them the way I want to help them, there's an opportunity. It's the same principle, parent. When your child is in a position of failure, you need to somehow put away your own personal disappointment because you're trying to live vicariously through them. Get that out of the way. Your own disgust or whatever that's happened or your irritation at the other people that caused this to happen and seize this as an opportunity to help them and nurture them and carry them through this, and that's good parenting. And anyone who knows I'm telling you the truth, say amen. amen. It's true. And I'm already in trouble. Let me say one more thing about that. Young parents, oh boy. You have a young daughter, you need to avoid the princess syndrome. 
oh, she's my princess. I know you love her. I know she's wonderful. I have a daughter. I understand all that. But there's something called the princess syndrome, but we somehow have shielded our little girls. And then one day, when they're out from under our covering and our care, they come into a circumstance where they realize they are not the center of the universe. And if you haven't prepared, if the princess syndrome has been so strong, and you have protected them to the point that they, they think that literally they are everyone's princess, be careful with the princess syndrome. Bring maturity and wisdom and understanding to your parenting. That's good, Dan. They don't like it, but that's good. <laughs> Let me tell you one more thing. I'm going to be very vulnerable with you here. I'm going to tell you a personal story, and I have permission to do this, by the way. Something about my own daughter. Young parents, it's easy to make mistakes in parenting even when you're trying to do your best. That's why I bring up the princess syndrome. You're doing it because you want them to know how much you love them. You want them to have everything you didn't have. You want them to uh, experience life to the full. You love them so much. You know, there's God, when, you, when you, God gives you children, he installs this thing somewhere that says that, oh, you need them to thrive. And you, life is wonderful when they're thriving. Life's terrible when they're not. And that's just part of it. One of the things I did with my daughter was this when she was younger. It's, it's one of the mistakes that I made. I'm going to be honest enough to tell you. And I called Sheridan last night and said, can I tell this? She said, okay. It's this. <clears throat> when she was little, I was always proud of the fact that she was not an, um, how, what I would say, an emotionally driven little girl. Now, did she show plenty of emotion? Yeah, she had all of that. But she was not one who cried all the time. She was pretty rugged internally, had a pretty strong emotional construct within. And this daddy was proud of that. But, you know, so she, she just wasn't one who cried very often. And I, she would hear me brag about that. Now, why was I bragging? I wanted to affirm her. I wanted her to know how much I loved her. I wanted her to know how proud I was of her, that she, she, was, she was her daddy's girl. I wanted to know that. But the day came when she was about 16, where she hit the wall, and she needed to cry, and she couldn't. You know why she couldn't cry? Because that would displease her daddy. And it took a very good counselor taking a ball bat and hitting me right between the eyes to say, here's what you did, buddy. <laughs> and I was in the room with her. I said, oh, my God, Sheridan. I didn't mean you couldn't cry. Your daddy cries a lot. I'm embarrassed that I cry more than you do. I just meant I'm glad you didn't cry every hour on the hour. That's all I meant. But in my effort to try to do the right thing for her and try to affirm her, I built that in her as well, that she couldn't release that emotion when she needed to cry because church... There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to cry, because we live our life in seasons. The writer of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, is very honest about his life. He paints the picture clearly of life as it really is. And he says, what does man spend his time on? And he comes to two conclusions, that life is full of contrasts, and life is full of continuity. On the one hand, there seems to be seasons that alternate with each other. On the other hand, there's a sameness about everything. 
And we know this is true, those of us who've lived much of life. We've experienced moments when we are deliriously happy and moments when we are completely down in the dumps and can't find our way out. So we have this and we have this. It happens to all of us. Moments of dancing, moments of mourning. Moments of joy, moments of tears. So the contrast is there. Life is full of contrast. And yet those contrasts keep recurring and, and, and reoccurring all the time. And so there's a constant series of life's ups and downs. This passage makes it clear, as I said a moment ago, that it is God who sets these seasons in order for us. It is God who will decide your next season, whether it will bring you joy or peace, joy and peace, or mourning and sorrow. It's God who moves circumstances that will either exalt you or humble you. And it's how you'll respond to God's movement in your life that will be the secret to finding the real point and the real purpose in life, because if God is doing it, then we can rest assured that there is purpose and there is meaning behind it all. But it takes an act of faith to believe that God sets the seasons. Fatalism says there is nothing I can do about it. Faith says, what is God saying to me by setting this season before me? Now, there are some people who try to deny that they are in the season they are in. They think that speaking somehow in faith to declare their season is something else other than what it is. And they literally deny the, what they are right in the middle of. And let me explain it to you this way. I think this will illustrate it to you well. Winter will be coming in a matter of weeks. We may even here in Texas experience a small amount of snow and ice. It's rare, but it, it happens occasionally. Now, I can try to deny that winter is here when it comes, and I can go out in my shorts and my flip-flops and my short sleeve t-shirt, and I can try to pretend that it's something other than what it is, but I would be a fool to do so. I am free to defy the seasons, but it's foolish to do it, even though I'm free to do it. What is predestined is that winter is coming. How I respond to that, whether I cooperate or whether I rebel against it, is in the area of human freedom. And God will not force you to go with the season He has set. But he who is wise learns how to move with the times and seasons that God sets. That's the message of Ecclesiastes 3. The man, that man is wise, who when God sends the summer knows how to enjoy it to the full and can sunbathe in God's goodness. But when God sends the winter, he knows how to lift his voice and say, I praise you for this also. For I know that you have great purpose in mind for me, even though I don't see it today. This, too, is a season you have set, and I want to respond to it properly, and I want to weave it into a tapestry that will bring something out of my life that at the end of the day will spell profit and not loss, according to Ecclesiastes 3. The man or woman who is wise will accept the fact that God brings both the sunshine and the rain, the good days and the not-so-good days, and that both are beautiful and useful for His purpose. Both are beautiful to him, they may not be beautiful to me, but he is weaving a beautiful picture that I cannot see. As you read this chapter in Ecclesiastes, it's easy to get a vivid picture of a huge tapestry. And we human beings standing on the backside of that tapestry, trying to make some sense of it as the various pieces of thread come through. Do you have the picture you can put up for me? Backside of a tapestry. It's not very pretty, is it? And we try to make sense of that. Why is this happening? Why is this such a mess? Why is it all tangled up? Why is this like this? 
And at times there are very dark or even black threads that are, that are pushed through. And there are beautiful colors and sometimes there's a dull gray as part of it all. But when we get the picture of going, but when we get the picture of going to the other side and seeing who Jesus is, he's pushing the threads through because he sees the finished product from his vantage point and it's beautiful. And all those dark threads are contrasted to the light colored threads. And we then see how necessary they all were for the ultimate beauty of the lovely piece of tapestry. And when we read Ecclesiastes, we understand that the writer stood on the back side of the tapestry and he never got around to the other side, but he did believe that it did exist. And that's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. The non-believer says, oh, I'll enjoy it while I can. I'll make the most of it. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. But the believer says, I'll enjoy when I can, but when God sends something good, I'll praise him because it's his gift. But I'll also praise him for the other things as well because I know that on his side of this tapestry, he's forming the most beautiful picture, and it's for my good. We used to sing, in the good times, I'll praise his name. In the bad times, I'll do the same. In everything, give the king of kings all the thanks and all the praise. Now, where you're in the Old Testament... You can only see the back side of the tapestry. But when you get to the New Testament, God is saying, come around here. Look on the other side and see what I'm doing. And there are certain passages in the New Testament that do just that. They take us to the other side of the tapestry. For example, when you read Ephesians 1, you'll read this. In all his wisdom and insight, God did what he had purposed and made known to us the secret plan he had already decided to complete by means of Christ. This plan, which God will complete when the time is right, is to bring all creation together, everything in heaven and on earth, with Christ as head. That means the secret is out. I now know what he's doing. I now know that he sets the seasons. He's creating a masterful tapestry, and the frame is Jesus Christ himself. And he's going to fit into that frame everything in heaven and on earth. And to fit it all in, he has to have contrast. To prepare us to be part of that picture, he has to put us through mourning as well as dancing. He has to give us sorrow as well as joy. There will be times of tears as well as times of laughter because the picture demands that everything has to be summed up in Christ Jesus. And when you understand this and when you fully embrace this, it is then and only then that you can begin to say with confidence, for I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Bless the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. I know that all things work together. The dark threads, the light threads, the gray ones, the colored ones, they all work together for his purpose. And in it all, I will give him thanks and praise. I know that the dancing in the morning, I know that the joy and the sorrow, I know that the planting and the reaping, everything that is set for me by God in the seasons, he has planned for purpose, and it's going to work for good. And then you can say, so what can spoil his purpose? Can famine, peril, sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us and gave himself for us. For I am persuaded, Pastor Brent said it this morning, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor 
Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody ought to put their hands together and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your master plan. Understanding this, Diana, I want you to come. I don't know where Pastor, well, there he is, Pastor Brent. We can say as the psalmist did, my times are in your hands. My times are in your hands. I want you to put your hands together and cup them like this and stretch them out like this. Come on. I want you to say with me, my times are in your hands. Now lift your gaze heavenward because you're not saying it to me. You're saying it to the Lord. My times are in your hands. Say it together. My times. My seasons are set by you. In the good times, I'll praise your name. And in the bad times, I'm going to do the same. In everything, in everything, in everything, I will give the King of Kings all the praise.